By now, everyone is aware of the leaked draft of the Supreme Court's decision in the abortion case, and the draft, which is from February, indicates that the Supreme Court appears likely to overrule Roe v. Wade when the opinion is officially released. On December 1st, 2021, the United States Supreme Court heard arguments in the abortion case, the most significant abortion case to come before the court in many years. And what's always a little strange about the Supreme Court is that you have the day of the oral argument in front of the justices and the case is in the news and there's a lot of discussion if it's a really important case. But then it takes many months for the Supreme Court to issue its ruling. And in this case, the Supreme Court probably won't issue its ruling until June, like six or seven months after the oral argument. So everybody gets all worked up for a day, a week or so, whatever. And then everyone goes back to their lives and forgets about the case. And I imagine between December 1st and May 2nd, when the draft opinion was leaked, a lot of people had probably already already forgotten that the Supreme Court was considering whether it's going to overturn Roe versus Wade. And normally we would all wake up on a sunny day in June and find out the Supreme Court had just issued their ruling and it would be a major news event. But that event has likely been usurped already by the leak to members of the media that just occurred. And the leak itself isn't really that important. I think it's surprising that there have previously, you know, haven't been leaks at the Supreme Court, but it's not, it's not really that important how the information became public. But just to backtrack procedurally, so after the oral argument on December 1st, the nine justices of the Supreme Court got together to sit in a room like a jury would to discuss the case and see where everyone stands And then the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, John Roberts, decides uh, who in the majority on the winning side, which justice will take the lead in writing the opinion for the majority. And so that justice writes a draft. And in this case, Justice Alito wrote a draft. And it gets circulated. And the justices in in the minority, the justices who support the position on the losing side, they can respond with what they intend to write in response in their dissenting opinion. And every justice on both sides can write an opinion to explain their perspective if they want. And there are months of drafts going back and forth and the justices maybe even being persuaded by something someone says and adjusting their opinion. And normally all of these drafts are pretty remarkably kept under wraps before it officially drops. So it can take a long time, like six months, for the ruling to be written, especially in a case of great importance, because over the course of the Supreme Court's annual term, which starts every year on the first Monday in October and then ends in June, the court hears about 80 cases, 60 to 80 cases. So in addition to the abortion case, they have a lot of other cases and opinions that need to need to be debated among the justices and written up with drafts going back and forth. Um, so Justice Sam Alito wrote the opinion, and we can assume that it's a five to four decision with Justice Alito and Justice Thomas in the majority ruling to 
overturn Roe versus Wade, along with the three Trump appointees, Justices Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett, and the four justices on the losing side who are against overturning Roe versus Wade would be the Chief Justice John Roberts and Justices Stephen Breyer, who's about to retire, and Justice uh, Sona, Sonia Sotomayor and Justice Elena Kagan, who were both appointed by Obama. It's worth noting that Justice Alito and Chief Justice Roberts were both appointed by George W. Bush, and they're on opposite sides of the decision. So you can't say it's based entirely on political lines because there is a Republican-appointed justice who will be voting to uphold a woman's right to choose. Um, But it also shows how important the Hillary Clinton-Donald Trump election turned out to be because if Hillary appointed the three justices instead of Trump, it wouldn't even be close. You would have six justices appointed by a Democrat plus John Roberts and then just two Republicans on the other side, Justices Sam Alito and Clarence Thomas. So this outcome shouldn't really come as a surprise to anyone. The overturning of Roe versus Wade was pretty much a foregone conclusion when Trump won the presidency and was able to appoint three justices, which highlights why it's really important that the elections in this country be fairly decided. Um, I have always been of the view that I can live with any decision that the Supreme Court makes even if it's one that I don't personally agree with, as long as the decision is the byproduct of free and fair elections, where every vote is being fairly and accurately counted. I don't know if that's uh, the case when it comes to our elections anymore. I'm surprised that the Biden administration hasn't done more to secure our elections, because that should really be the priority of any administration, to make sure that we have secure elections free and fair elections where every vote is accurately counted. If we have that, it's fine to lose on any issue, including abortion, because it reflects the will of the people. But if the elections do not reflect the will of the people, then you're just spinning your wheels and you're not really living in a democracy. So any issue can go one way for a period of time and then go back another way for a period of time if that's what the people want. But that can only happen if you have free and fair elections, which is why that should be the single most important issue for anyone. Now, the Supreme Court gets to decide which cases it wants to hear. You often hear people say they're going to fight something all the way to the the Supreme Court. But even if you ask the Supreme Court to hear your case, they only accept a small percentage of the cases that people ask them to hear. So it's a big deal to get the Supreme Court to even consider your case because most of the time they decline and the appellate court below them is likely the final word on any issue. Uh, So you have like a trial court where judges and juries rule on an issue and then the losing side can go to the appellate court to have that ruling reviewed And usually that's the end of the matter, unless you're one of the handful of cases that goes up to the Supreme Court. And because it's such a long shot to get the Supreme Court to hear your case, most people don't even invest 
resources to ask the Supreme Court to hear their case, and the case ends in the appellate court. And then some people don't even bother to appeal, and the trial court is the final word without an appeal. So it's trial court, appellate court, and then the Supreme Court. After a case is heard in the appellate courts, there are about 8,000 cases each year for which requests are submitted to the Supreme Court. They're called petitions for certiorari. About 8,000 people who lose their cases in the appellate court ask the Supreme Court to consider their case. And the Supreme Court grants certiorari, or as they say, grants cert, and agrees to hear like 60 to 80 of those cases a year. And the other 7,900 plus petitions are rejected. Uh, Some years it's fewer than 80 cases. Some years it's more. It used to be more in general. But over the years, the number of cases the Supreme Court has agreed to hear has trended downward. In the 2021 to 2022 term, I think it was like 66 cases that they heard. Um, In deciding which cases to hear, the Supreme Court is looking for cases that are really important, the, the hot topics where the country is really divided, like abortion. And they're also looking for cases that may not be hot topics, but where the lower courts are divided on an issue, where, for example, there are some appellate courts that say something is allowed and other appellate courts that say something is not allowed, And the Supreme Court then says, okay, we'll take the case and resolve this, and that will be the law going forward. Um, So what's really going on in this whole abortion thing at the Supreme Court is that obviously there are some people in the United States in favor of abortion, other people who are not in favor of abortion, but the United States Constitution, which is the rule book, doesn't really say anything about abortion one way or the other at least not explicitly. So people on both sides are going to interpret the Constitution in a way that best supports their argument. Um, Some laws in this country are passed by the federal government through bills that make their way through Congress that are drafted, debated on, and voted on by the House of Representatives and the Senate and are then signed into law by the president or sometimes the president vetoes the laws passed by Congress, and then Congress can override the veto with a two-third majority of of both the House and the Senate to pass the law. And then there are other laws passed by state governments, laws which apply only in the state that passes the law, and they go through a similar process where they're signed into law by the governor of the state or possibly vetoed, and the veto is overridden by the state legislature. And then there are other laws, rules, regulations, and ordinances on an even more local level, passed by counties, cities, municipalities, etc. But whatever the law is, whether it's federal, state, local, whatever, it has to be a law that is allowed under the United States Constitution, which has a lot of provisions that dictate which laws can and cannot be passed by Congress and by state or local governments. And if someone believes a law that's been passed is not valid under the Constitution, they can challenge the law in court. 
usually in a circumstance where the law is being applied against the person raising the challenge, and then judges decide whether the law is allowed under the Constitution, which all depends on how the particular judge deciding the case interprets the provision of the United States Constitution that is at issue. And as I said before, sometimes there are situations where judges come out on different sides and interpret the same law differently. And that's when the Supreme Court may get involved to say which judges interpreted the law correctly based on the vote of the nine Supreme Court justices. Um, the law at issue in this abortion case that was just considered by the Supreme Court, that's the subject of the leaked opinion, is a law passed by the legislature in Mississippi that bans abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. And it's being challenged as an unconstitutional law that infringes upon an individual's right to choose to have an abortion. So generally speaking, if there isn't a rule in the United States Constitution about something, if the Constitution is silent about something and doesn't prohibit a law from being passed, then the states can do what they want. Many, um, many of the things for which we have laws in our country are not addressed by the Constitution, and it's left to the states to make up their own laws. For example, the Constitution doesn't really address too many things having to do with criminal activity, so states can pass laws saying what is and isn't a crime in their state and how crimes will be punished. But just for example, under the First Amendment of the Constitution, Congress and the states cannot pass a law that abridges the right to free speech. So, for example, the state of Mississippi or any of the 50 states cannot pass a law that says if you come out in favor of abortion, it's a crime and we're going to fine you $1,000 or put you in jail for being pro-abortion. Um, a law like that would obviously violate someone's First Amendment rights. But if there was no First Amendment, uh, a state government could pass a law that infringes on someone's right to free speech. The, the United States Constitution is an agreement among the different states. Originally, it was 13 states or colonies, and they were all operating on their own, but they all had interests that were aligned. So they got together and they said, we're going to unite and create the United States, and we're going to make rules for how to run our country and have certain rules that apply to everyone in all of the states. And then there will be other things that we're not going to agree on and every state can run things their own way and make their own laws when it comes to a lot of other things and that usually depends on the makeup of the population and the things the people living in each state believe and care about so a lot of people think that since the united states constitution doesn't say anything specifically about abortion it should really be up to each of the states to make the laws they want when it comes to abortion. And the people of California can vote for state representatives and a governor who are not going to pass laws banning abortions. And the people of Mississippi can vote for people who will pass laws banning abortion. And people should just live in the place that's most aligned with their views. And people have the right 
under the Constitution to travel to all 50 states and live anywhere they want. So you can live in the state that's most aligned with your view of the world. And until 1973, states were allowed to pass laws making abortion illegal, and some did. But the current state of the law for the past 49 years has been that the United States Supreme Court has held that the Constitution should be interpreted as saying that a state legislature cannot pass a law prohibiting abortions. In 1973, it was against the law to have an abortion in the state of Texas. That's what the state legislature there decided. And a 21-year-old woman named Norma McCorvey became pregnant, and she filed a lawsuit in Texas. And because it was a private matter, she used the alias Jane Roe, and she sued the chief prosecutor in Dallas, the district attorney, Henry Wade, on the ground that the district attorney's enforcement of the abortion ban violated her constitutional rights. And the case of Jane Roe versus Henry Wade made its way up to the United States Supreme Court, and the court agreed to hear the case, and they used the opportunity of the case of Roe versus Wade to say that under the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution, a state legislature cannot pass a law that totally bans abortions, and the law in Texas is therefore unconstitutional. It cannot be enforced by Henry Wade, and no states can have anti-abortion laws like the one in Texas. They ruled that states can still place limitations on abortions, but states cannot totally ban it. And since then, states that oppose abortion have tried to chip away at that ruling by passing laws that make it more difficult to have abortions, but do not totally eliminate the right to have an abortion. And when the makeup of the Supreme Court is more conservative, the justices have gone along with it. And when it's more liberal, the justices have pushed back against those efforts. But the big goal of the anti-abortion movement has always been to get enough justices on the Supreme Court, at least five out of nine, to just say Roe versus Wade was wrongly decided in 1973. The Constitution should not be interpreted to be saying that laws cannot be passed that ban abortions, and states can pass laws like the, like the law that there used to be in Texas that make abortion illegal. And we should go back to a system where every state does whatever they want to do when it comes to abortion. That's the basic anti-abortion position, but in the back of their mind, they're actually hoping that eventually they can get a majority in Congress to pass laws making abortion illegal, and it won't even be up to the states. But that's uh, a whole separate issue. Um, the Constitution does not say how the Constitution should be interpreted. It could have said how it should be interpreted, but it left open to interpretation how it should be interpreted. Like there could have been a sentence in the United States Constitution that says this document should be strictly construed based on the literal meaning of the words, but it doesn't say anything like that. And what makes up 
a lot of the debate in our judicial system and in our country, not just when it comes to abortion, but when it comes to all issues, a lot of the debate comes down to what approach should judges take when they interpret the meaning of the words in the Constitution, which is kind of the case for any rule book. The different ways of interpreting the Constitution is similar, similar to how there are different ways of interpreting the Bible, how literally should a passage be interpreted, or in games or in, in sports, how do you interpret the rules, and not even just rule books. I mean, interpreting the meaning of text, the meaning of words, is something that all of us do all the time in our day-to-day lives. And I only say that to maybe help to demystify the notion that only certain experts like lawyers, judges, politicians, news commentators are capable of interpreting the Constitution. Um, you You don't have to be a constitutional scholar to read the Constitution and have an opinion on what you think it means. The Constitution is not very long. It's a pretty short document. But there's an ongoing effort, an ongoing campaign to discourage you from reading it. And there are many people who want you to believe that you are not capable of understanding the Constitution and that it should be left to the experts who are more likely to interpret the Constitution to help themselves. There's, there's no shortage of people in the United States who, on a daily basis, are taking advantage of the fact that they are in the very small minority of people in the United States who have actually read the Constitution and they're using their knowledge of the Constitution to advance their own interests and not uh, your interests. People will continue to do that and get away with it because no one's watching and everyone is distracted by a lot of other things that are meant to distract you, which is why it's important to read the book. But there, there are always issues that come up regarding what does the Constitution mean And how should it be interpreted when it doesn't address something directly or expressly? Um, Like, for example, can the government search your emails without a warrant, even though the Fourth Amendment says you have a right to be secure in your papers, but says nothing about your emails because they didn't have emails when the Constitution was written? So even though the Constitution says nothing about abortion, Uh, The question is, what portions of the Constitution should we rely on to know whether someone has a right to an abortion without interference by the government? There's really only one approach when it comes to interpreting the meaning of the words in the Constitution, but in the public arena, it's, it's been turned into three approaches for purposes of labeling people and creating more division. The three approaches that people claim exist are originalism, textualism, and living constitutionalism. But originalism is just a more narrowly focused conservative approach to textualism, and living constitutionalism is a more broadly focused liberal approach to textualism. But it's all textualism. It's all about reading and interpreting the text because that's really the only way to do it. So textualism is the view that when interpreting the Constitution, 
we should just look at the text. That's it. Just look at the words on the page in the Constitution, and those words should be reasonably interpreted by judges, which is what we all do in life all the time. Originalism, on the other hand, is the view that the most important thing for the judge to consider when interpreting the Constitution is what did the drafters in the 1700s mean when they wrote the words. Textualism, on the other hand, compared to originalism, as the terms are used, says the intention of the founding fathers doesn't really matter so much, and what's important is what are the words on the page. If the words on the page can be reasonably interpreted to mean what you say they mean, that's good enough. And some textualists might say that if the founding fathers did not intend for the words they wrote to be interpreted the way they're being interpreted today, then that's too bad. If they really didn't want something to be interpreted a certain way, then they should have made that a lot more clear in the document they wrote because their intention was for the document to survive for hundreds of years and they knew or at least hoped that judges would be interpreting it hundreds of years after it was written. Textualism takes the position that the Constitution says what it says and we have to live by those words and if you wanted to say something different, then you have to amend the Constitution. The justices who support overturning Roe versus Wade would say that they consider themselves to be textualists, but the extent to which someone is faithful to the text of the Constitution is essentially a matter of opinion. I don't think someone can just declare themselves a textualist as a way of essentially declaring that they are reasonably interpreting the Constitution. The third approach, living constitutionalism, um, or a living constitution, is considered a more liberal approach and takes the position that the constitution is a living document that develops and changes according to the necessities of society and the times and believes that the constitution was intentionally written broadly and with language that is intentionally vague and ambiguous so that it can exist as a flexible living document that it adapts to provide the people and the government with whatever society needs at any given time to help ensure that everyone is living better lives and that progress in our society will be made. But really, it's still textualism. It's just, more, it's just a more liberal interpretation of the text. It's still rooted in the text of the Constitution. Justice Antonin Scalia, who died in 2016, was a proponent of textualism, and he would harshly criticize his colleagues who he would say were proponents of the living constitution theory, like Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And he would consider living constitutionalism to be judicial activism, judges being activists and creating new law instead of interpreting the law is that's the accusation. And sometimes the accusation is appropriate, sometimes it's not. But textualism, when applied conservatively, can also be reduced to judicial activism. It's just done in a way that's more subtle. I think people use these terms as ways of labeling and categorizing people who have different views, but I think everyone is a textualist and there's a range of interpretations, just like with everything in life. I think the most 
important thing when it comes to interpreting the Constitution is to just be intellectually honest. And that that is what's often lacking on the Supreme Court on both sides, whether it's Republican or Democrat appointed justices. A good Supreme Court justice is one who sets aside their personal feelings, sets aside their political affiliations, and just takes an honest look at what the Constitution says and just accepts the fact that you're going to win some and you're going to lose some. Some of what's in the Constitution you'll agree with, some things you'll disagree with, and the Constitution has a mechanism for forming a consensus among the population to change the rules, to amend the Constitution. But the job of a justice is to follow the Constitution honestly and not decide what outcomes they want and then work their way backwards from that outcome to come up with an interpretation that fits your personal belief system and your own view of the world. And the and that intellectual honesty can and should be sprinkled with a little common sense and some equitable discretion that justices, that the judges should retain to try to achieve a fair result that doesn't prejudice any one side or undermine the Constitution. But a lot of what we see on the Supreme Court are justices who want a certain outcome and then find a way to shoehorn it into the Constitution. And people may say the Republican appointed justices have done that on the Second Amendment issue and the right to own guns and other issues, while others might argue that the Democrat appointed justices have done that with abortion and other issues. But I think it's fair to say there's a lot of activism by everyone and by justices across the spectrum of viewpoints um, and that they often make arguments that often lack intellectual honesty. So what, what is the reason why the Supreme Court in 1973 said that the Constitution does not allow laws to be passed by states banning abortions? In Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court ruled in a 7-2 to two decision that the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment should be interpreted as providing individuals with a right to privacy when it comes to decisions about whether to have an abortion, um, at least, and that at least during the first trimester, the government cannot interfere with someone's decision to have an abortion. At that stage, the court held it is still a private matter and the government should not be involved. Then, 19 years later, in 1992, there was a case called Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And in that case, the Supreme Court upheld Roe versus Wade, but abandoned the trimester approach and applied a viability approach. So instead of the government being hands-off during the first trimester, the government cannot interfere prior to the fetus being viable and able to survive outside the, the womb, which is generally considered to occur at 22 weeks. But what we've seen since Casey in 1992 and what we saw with the Mississippi law is that states are always trying to pass laws that advance the viability date. Doctors for anti-abortion advocates will testify that viability is much earlier 
The position currently being taken is if there's a heartbeat, then it's viable, and laws referred to as heartbeat bills are being passed. But the bottom line is that the Supreme Court held in Roe versus Wade, and then again in the Casey case, that even though the 14th Amendment doesn't say anything specifically about abortion, it can be implied from the 14th Amendment that someone has a right to privacy when it comes to abortion decisions that cannot be infringed by the government, at least uh, during the early stages of a pregnancy. So at the center of the abortion debate is the question of how do we interpret the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, more specifically the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, and based on a fair reading of that sentence, can we interpret it as not allowing laws to be passed that prohibit abortion? So we need to look at the 14th Amendment. In 1865, the 13th Amendment was adopted by the states, and that amendment abolished slavery. Then three years later, the states adopted the 14th Amendment, which prevented states from circumventing the 13th Amendment. The 13th Amendment says, quote, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as punishment for crimes whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as punishment for crimes, shall exist within the United States. Now you can see that the 13th Amendment has an obvious flaw in that it says there's no slavery except as punishment for crimes where someone is duly convicted. So then, three years later, the 14th Amendment tried to fix that loophole a little bit, and the 14th Amendment says that no state can pass any law that deprives someone of liberty without due process, which means that if you're going to be punished for a crime, you will have a fair legal process, you will have fair notice, you'll have a fair trial or hearing within a reasonable amount of time, you'll have a fair opportunity to make your arguments, to respond, and to defend yourself. So the 14th Amendment basically prevented states from circumventing the 13th Amendment by locking people up and depriving them of liberty without due process of law and without giving them a fair trial. You can't, for example, get around the 13th Amendment by saying, you're not a slave, you're just locked up for a crime, and we don't have to tell you what you did or present evidence or give you a fair trial anytime soon. And obviously in 2022, because the criminal justice system is so broken, that's unfortunately to some extent what we have where people are stuck in a judicial system that in many, many cases does not comply with the 14th Amendment. And the 14th Amendment says, no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. So those words in the Constitution, the Due Process Clause, are currently the source for the right to have an abortion in the United States. The sentence is, no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And in Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court said, quote, 
the right of privacy founded in the 14th Amendment's concept of personal liberty, liberty encompasses a woman's decision whether or not to terminate her pregnancy. The Supreme Court is saying that in or what they're saying in Roe versus Wade is that inherent in the concept of liberty is a right to privacy with respect to decisions relating to abortion. And that makes sense, but the due process clause also says that the state the states shall not deprive someone of liberty without due process, which can be interpreted to mean that a state can take away your liberty by passing laws banning abortions as long as there's a fair process for someone to be heard and to make their case for being allowed to have an abortion. But what the Supreme Court was saying, and something that I think it could have maybe said even more clearly in Roe versus Wade, is that the law itself, the Texas law banning abortion, is itself an unlawful act by the state that takes away a person's liberty without due process of law. When we talk about giving someone a hearing or a trial before taking away a liberty interest, we're talking about procedural due process. There have to be proper procedures. But when we're talking about fundamental, basic, core individual rights, including the right to privately make a decision about having an abortion, that's a substantive due process right. And if a state legislature passes a law taking away that fundamental, substantive individual right, then it already violates the due process clause. The Supreme Court was saying that there there are no procedures and there is no process by which someone other than the person carrying the child can insert themselves into the decision of whether to terminate a pregnancy during the first trimester of a pregnancy. And the notion that a, that a third party acting on behalf of the government would have any role in that decision is incompatible with the basic tenets and principles of the United States Constitution and the value it places on individual freedom. The, the Supreme Court is essentially saying that there are some laws that just violate the Due Process Clause the instant they're passed because the existence of the law deprives people of liberty, of a basic fundamental right without due process. A state, for example, cannot pass a law banning contraception because that would also deprive someone of liberty without due process. And it's not sufficient for the state government to say, well, we're going to set up an office where you can come down and file an application for permission to use contraception and a panel of, of doctors will decide whether or not you can use contraception. So when people read the Due Process Clause saying that a state cannot deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, some people are going to interpret that to mean that a state cannot pass a law that deprives you of the right of, to privacy and the right to make choices that are private. And other people are going to interpret that sentence more literally to mean that states can pass whatever laws they want 
that may deprive you of your life, liberty, or property, but the procedures need to be fair. So the the interpretation can even hinge on the fact that it says life, liberty, or property, comma, without due process of law, because that comma could change the meaning of the sentence. So the bottom line is that that sentence, the due process clause or the due process sentence, is open to interpretation. Both interpretations are not outside the bounds of reason, and the Constitution does not say how the Constitution should be interpreted. But the problem that some people have with an interpretation of the Due Process Clause that finds certain rights are essentially entitled to a higher level of protection because they are fundamental or substantive rights is that it leaves it up to judges to decide what are the fundamental rights that cannot be violated. I mean, conceptually, it's a theory that people on both sides can get behind, that the government should have no say when it comes to certain aspects of our lives. And it's a theory that has survived since 1973. But the other interpretation is also reasonable. And whatever the personal motives of the people who want to see Roe versus Wade overturned, whatever the motives of someone like Justice Alito, Justice Thomas, and the other conservative justices may be, one thing they do have going for themselves is that they can just say, we interpret the due process clause of the Constitution differently, and the rules of our society under the Constitution allow the Supreme Court justices justices to take that position if a majority of the justices want to do that. That's just how the system works. And then people who wish it would go back the other way can take action to try to make that happen. The bottom line is, without belaboring the point, the due process clause works um, and it's worked since 1973 as a way to, um, you know, allow people to have abortions, but it isn't a perfect fit. And it would be better if there's another provision in the Constitution that maybe more clearly provides a basis for not allowing states to ban abortion. And I believe that there is another provision. I think, I think it's well established that the debate over abortion is at its core a disagreement over religious views or religious beliefs. The anti-abortion movement is based on the belief that a fetus, an embryo, a zygote, whatever it is that is being aborted, should not be aborted because it is a life, a human being from the moment of conception with God-given rights that should be protected. And there are many people who are pro-choice, including people who would choose to have an abortion, who love God as much as someone who is anti-abortion, but maybe understand God differently or understand God the same, but are still going to choose differently. Whether or not abortion is wrong in the eyes of God or any higher power depends on what you personally believe when it comes to God, the universe, the meaning of life, how did we get here, why are we here, Some people might believe that God wants people to have abortions, and you can't rebut that belief even if you disagree with it. The point of view that life begins at conception is a point of view of the order of our universe and someone's personal understanding of a higher power uh, to whatever extent someone believes in a higher power. 
when when many of these abortion laws that have tried to take away abortion rights are passed, the state governments that pass them do not hide the fact that the law is being passed because of the religious viewpoint that abortion is immoral or wrong or a sin in the eyes of God. In May 2021, Texas went even further than the state of Mississippi and passed a law banning abortions after six weeks. And the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, said about the law, he said, our creator endowed us with the right to life, and yet millions of children lose their right to life every year because of abortion. A few days before that, Alabama passed a bill effectively banning abortions with limited exceptions, and the governor, Kay Ivey, signed it into law saying that the law stands as a powerful testament to Alabamans' deeply held belief that every life is precious and that every life is a sacred gift from God. The governors, so, you know, the governors who sign these laws into law, they admit that the laws were enacted for reasons that are clearly not allowed under the First Amendment of the United States Constitution. The First Amendment does not allow laws to be passed by Congress or the states respecting an establishment of religion. That's, you know, the quote is respecting an establishment of religion. Under the Establishment Clause of the Constitution, which can be found in the First Amendment, Congress and state legislatures cannot pass any laws that take a position on or respects a specific religious belief or view. No laws respecting an establishment of religion are allowed under the Constitution. What does that mean? respecting an establishment of religion. Religion, based on, on the Latin word religio, means a reverence for God, however you define God. You cannot pass a law that respects the existence of God or reveres God and requires others to take on your own reverence for God. If you revere God, if you are religious, that's wonderful, and you are free to live your life with that reverence for God, but you cannot require others or pass laws that compel others to have the same reverence for God, and the United States was founded on that basic principle. Justice Alito's opinion that was leaked begins and ends by saying that abortion is a moral issue. If it's a moral issue, then that means it's a religious issue. The view that abortion is wrong is based on a religious belief that abortion is immoral in the eyes of God. That religious belief is not shared by all, and states cannot pass laws that impose that religious belief on people residing in the state. Any law banning abortion is premised on religious beliefs, and nobody is telling anyone their beliefs are wrong. But those beliefs about the meaning of life and when life begins are religious viewpoints, and a law that respects one's religious viewpoints over another is not allowed. Someone, you know, someone might respond to that by saying that you can say that about any law, that any prohibition in our society is really at its core based on a belief of what is right and what is wrong. And it happens all the time in our society that a law exists because the people who support the law think something is morally morally wrong and should not be allowed, while others disagree and think it should be allowed. 
But I think the answer to that can be found in the citizenship clause of the 14th Amendment, which comes before the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. The citizenship clause states that all persons born in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States. In other words, the United States has no interest in the unborn. The United States doesn't even have jurisdiction over you until you are born. You are not a citizen until you are born. The Constitution does not recognize the rights of the unborn and therefore, any recognition of the rights of the unborn is not rooted in the Constitution or the law, but arises from a personal belief of when life begins. There are many different opinions from a lot of different people on what is life and when it begins. And because the government has no interest in someone being born and does not even recognize that person under the laws of the United States until that person is born then it has no interest in protecting the life of the unborn. Some might say it's the right thing for the government to do. Some might say it's the moral thing to do. But there is no legitimate state interest or governmental interest in an unborn child. Now, the truth is we don't know for sure yet if the draft opinion of Justice Alito is the final word on the abortion issue, particularly because another justice could write a concurring opinion that agrees with Justice Alito's ruling that Roe versus Wade is wrongly decided, but at the same time qualifies the holding by saying what I just said, that even if the 14th Amendment does not prohibit states from banning abortion, the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment does. For example, someone like Justice Gorsuch could come along and say that he does not think states should be allowed to pass laws that prohibit abortions if someone's religious beliefs allows them to get an abortion. And then the four justices in the minority could join him to make that the ruling of the Supreme Court. I'm less than optimistic of that happening, but even if that doesn't happen, it seems that as soon as Justice Alito's opinion becomes the law, that someone can file a lawsuit in Mississippi or in another state that bans abortion and say that their First Amendment rights are being violated because the abortion ban is imposing upon them or conflicts with their religious beliefs. I believe, I, I predict that very soon we will see the abortion battleground move from the 14th Amendment to the First Amendment, and the abortion issue will become less about the right of privacy and more about religious freedom. And courts will begin to look at the abortion issue in the context of religious beliefs and answering questions such as, you know, what does the word religion mean in the context of the United States Constitution? We'll see some strange alliances where people who are anti-abortion will be taking positions that limit the freedom of religion, while people who support abortion will be taking positions that attempt to afford more freedom of religion when it comes to making choices about abortion. I understand the stress and concern that this ruling uh, creates, but I don't think anyone has to panic about any decision by the Supreme Court. There are many examples in this country's history of taking one step back before taking three steps forward. The makeup of the Supreme Court can and will always change, and laws can be passed by Congress and by the states 
in response to Roe versus Wade being overturned. People who live in states where abortion becomes illegal can mobilize and change the makeup of the government in their states in order to change the laws. People in states where abortion is legal can help make it easier for people who live in states where abortion is illegal to get abortions. People can choose not to live or visit certain places. There will, there will certainly be people who are harmed by the Supreme Court's decision, but the people who support overturning Roe versus Wade could see the strategy backfire and eventually find themselves, themselves saying, I'm not sure I should have asked for this. That is why, once again, back to what I said at the beginning, this really all comes down to whether or not we have free and fair elections. As long as the votes are accurately tallied and everyone who has the right to vote gets a chance to vote, then anything can be accomplished. Ensuring that we have free and fair elections should be everyone's number one priority at all times. That's the only way you have a real democracy that follows the Constitution and the only way you could change any ruling by the Supreme Court that you think should be changed. That's all it really comes down to. Do we have free and fair elections? Or are we like other countries where the elections are a sham? If you're instead focused on the hysteria created by adverse decisions by the Supreme Court, then you're falling into the trap of being distracted by outcomes which can easily be changed through the democratic process. The time to panic is when the Constitution is clear and unambiguous about something and the Supreme Court says it's not following the Constitution. That's when we have a real problem on our hands. This isn't that. It's fair for Justice Alito to say he's interpreting the Constitution the way he's interpreting it, and it's fair for someone to say that he's a dick for interpreting it that way. But in the end, it's still just the Supreme Court. In a in, in certain respect, it's just words on a page and not real life. And when real situations arise, despite the added inconvenience, People are resourceful and have a great capacity for figuring out how to address real-life situations. And all of this will eventually become a moot point anyway because the sex robots revolution is a lot closer to happening than people even realize, and that's going to change everything when it comes to pregnancy and abortions and religion, the meaning of life and morality, and all the things that people today waste a lot of their time thinking about. Relatively speaking, the sex robots revolution is right around the corner, but that's a discussion for another time, maybe for a future episode if people are interested in hearing about it. In the meantime, we still don't know if this is a done deal yet. We still don't know what the final Supreme Court opinion is going to say, but assuming it is the final, war, final word, what's done is done, can't be undone, undo what's done to make what's new. Thank you for listening.